Good morning, and welcome to Hope Church on this March 8th, a date celebrated annually since 1911 as International Women's Day. As a gift to our congregation, the women of Hope Church are presenting the service today. It will be a bit different, but as always, our mission is seeking hope, love, and justice together in community. Whoever you are, whomever you love, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, and whatever your life circumstances, you are welcome here. If you're new to Hope or are still feeling new, we invite you to use a yellow mug at the coffee hour. This indicates that you'd like to speak with members who call Hope Church their spiritual home. We would like all of you to make your presence known to us this morning. If you are sitting at the end of a row, please open the teal covered pad and fill out the form inside, then pass it to your neighbor. Once it reaches the end of your row, pass it back to the center aisles and be sure to note who is worshiping with you today and welcome them by name after worship. To all who are here this morning, welcome home. Please stand and body your spirit as we sing together our gathering You may be seated. As we light the flaming chalice, symbol of our living faith, we say together, we light this beacon of hope, sign of our quest for truth and meaning in celebration of the life we share together. Today we are celebrating the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, wearing the symbol of the suffragettes the Yellow Rose. Thank you, Deborah Whitaker, for these. We understand that we are standing in the shade of trees we did not plant. The women who met in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848 did not live to see the right to vote achieved 72 years later. Yet, they persisted. May we be inspired by their stories. Please join me as we recite our living covenant. Love is the spirit of its church and service is its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Okay, so uh, 
I'm Janet Nobles, and I'm with the Stewardship Committee, and I'm doing announcements today. So I need for you to know, first of all, that there's no supper club this month because we're having pie at on 314 at 314. And if, if you happen to be about round and about at noon, you can join a garden party from 12 until, until 312. Doesn't that sound like a plan? And now Larry Sharp is going to speak to us about our movie. Thank you, Janet. Good morning, everyone. And ladies, congratulations. We love you all. Um, the 17th of this month is St. Patrick's Day. And in honor of that day, we decided to show the archetypical film about Ireland and the Irish. It was released in 1952 and won John Ford his fourth Best Director Academy Award and Wynton Coke, his first as best cinematographer. This has often been described as the most beautiful film ever filmed. The title, The Quiet Man. John Ford did something very unusual. He put together what would be known in the theater as a stock company of actors he could mix and match depending on the, on the project. And that led to his unusual consistency as a director and the beauty of all of the films that he produced. So it's about a 19, it takes place right after the First World War. And um, an Irish-born American from Pittsburgh decides to return to Ireland to purchase the old family farm. And therein hangs a tale. It's a film about love, beauty, humility, honor. It's just a beautiful, complete film from beginning to end, and I think you'll truly enjoy it. So join us Tuesday night at 7, and let's help celebrate St. Patrick's Day just a little early. Thank you. Well, do you want to know what March 29th is? You may have seen the signs, and this is the month where we do our pledge drive. So we're taking a new approach to ple pledging. Our theme is spiritual growth through generosity. And so what we're going to do, as Lewis Meyer once said, and I paraphrase, the more you pledge, the taller you grow. <laughs> the plan is to meditate on what the pledge commitment means uh, as a personal commitment and as a community covenant and how to translate that into the larger community. So this month we will be discussing how pledging fits into your spiritual commitment. And now, what is the 29th about? Well, that is going to be the Sunday that we make our pledge and the pulpit will be filled with by Dr. Diana Davis and she is the first uh, UU minister from First Unitarian Church in Oklahoma City. And she was, uh, in her life before her call to the ministry, she has been the director of international programs at the University of Iowa and the vice Pro provost for international initiatives at Princeton before her 
her call to become a UU minister. And then she went to Meadville Lombard to study. Before going into the ministry, Dr. Davies served in varying uh, capacities as a member of, at her home church in Baltimore. She will be speaking to us uh, about her spiritual commitment to hope, about our spiritual commitment to hope. During her discussion with us, we will look at our convictions, our priorities, our spiritual practices, and make a decision about our financial commitment to hope. And yes, we will sign our pledge cards together during the service on the spot. We will do it confidentially, but we will do it in community. And then we will celebrate together uh, about this commitment being a joy rather than an obligation. So on March 29th, we'll have a great celebration after the service. We're having a lovely luncheon that is uh, going to be catered by Ludgers, and we are going to hear the results of our pledging commitment on the spot, and we will celebrate. So in order to plan for your space at the luncheon during next Sunday or the next Sunday, we will ask you to uh, sign a reservation card, and, uh, and you may do that on either Sunday, but we will need to know before the event. And the luncheon will be our gift to you for your support of our beautiful church. I'm short, but I'm not forgotten. <laughs> My family and I moved to Tulsa in August of 1969. I was hired by Tulsa Public Schools and assigned to Andrew Jackson Elementary School to teach first grade. Jackson's neighborhood was made up of small two and three bedroom houses inhabited by white, hardworking families. Just to the north of the Jackson neighborhood was Apache Manor, a government-funded housing area. Our students were a mix of black and white. I took my children to Jackson with me. They were six, seven, and nine at the time. My son Jeff was in the second grade. I don't know how or when it started, but he was being harassed by a pair of ultra-religious twin boys in his classroom. Finally, on the playground one day, out of pure frustration, Jeff said to the twins, I don't believe in God. Now leave me alone. <laughs> well, of course, the two boys went straight to their teacher to tell on Jeff. Their teacher... Trudy Price was a good friend. When school ended for the day, Trudy came to me and told me about the exchange. I told her that I wasn't surprised because we were Unitarians. Trudy asked, what is a Unitarian? 
I began to explain to the best of my ability, and as we talked, the other three teachers in my prefab came out of their rooms to listen and to ask questions. When the discussion ended, Carol, the teacher in the room next to mine, turned to me and said, I will never trust you again. Now, Carol and I had begun teaching on the same day. We had helped each other through our hard first year of teaching, and I had introduced her to the young man she married. But now, she couldn't trust me? Hope Unitarian Church is absolutely necessary. It must be here for our children to teach and support them as they grow and become the people they are meant to be. Hope Church must be here for us adults as well to support us, we who think differently than the average person on the street. In order for Hope to be here, it must be supported financially by all of us. Please pledge what you can. Keep in mind that a pledge is a promise, so keep your pledge within your ability to pay. Clint and I are raising our pledge a bit. If you can, please raise yours as well. If you are new to Hope or have never pledged before, please do so now. I believe in Hope Church. I have found friendships, experiences, and knowledge here for over 50 years. Hope has been and continues to be a center part of my life. This is why I pledge. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. Activist Carolyn McDade once said that she was so tired with the state of the world that she felt like a piece of dried cardboard that had laid in the attic for years. One sleepless night, weary and disheartened, she went downstairs, sat at her piano, and composed a prayer. We sing it here every Sunday. Please join with me as we sing together, Spirit of Life. Spirit of life spanning the generations, 
inspiring and sustaining those in the margins of history, as well as those who took center stage. Be with us now. We thank you for this day and for the opportunities it brings. May we live it well. May we be kind. May we listen more than we speak. May we learn from those with whom we disagree. And may we offer a hand to the stranger as well as to our friends. May we be generous in love and have the stamina to persevere when our aspirations seem ever beyond our reach. Bless this community. Sustain and support us as we create our own stories. May we be an inspiration for the future. Please join me in a moment of silence and reflection. Elizabeth Cady Stanton went with her husband, Henry B. Stanton, to the World Anti-Slavery Association 
as a delegate to the convention in London. The year was 1840. Henry was vice president of the association, and it was their honeymoon. There, she and Lucretia Mott found, much to their chagrin, that they were not allowed to sit on the floor with their male colleagues. They were relegated to a gallery behind a drawn black curtain where they could be neither seen nor heard. They were angry about this exclusion and vowed to plan a women's rights conference when they returned to the United States, thus planting the seed for the first women's conference at Seneca Hall. Elizabeth Cady's awareness of the lack of fairness to females began very early in her childhood. She recalled, the first event engraved in my memory was the birth of a sister when I was four years old. I heard so many friends remark, what a pity it's a girl. I did not understand at the time that girls were considered an inferior order of being. When she was a little girl, Elizabeth refused to accept the repressive elements of her parents' religion that demanded she accept them quietly with obedience and humility. She complained to her elders, everything we do is a sin. I am so tired of that everlasting no, no, no. At school, at home, at church, everything is a no. Even at church, all the commandments begin with, thou shall not. She was, however, frightened by the Scotch Presbyterian devil, and she lived in fear that he may claim her due to her wickedness as a rebellious and often disobedient child. As she grew older, her religious fears would change to doubt and then to anger as she came to realize the effects of religion had on the lives of women. In the household where Elizabeth Cady grew up, her mother was a shadowy figure, suffering from the depression of loss of several children. Her father clearly favored an older brother over the other five female children. Now, Daniel Cady was a prominent attorney and judge at the time, and all of his hopes, his strong sense of family, were bound up in his only son. But right after graduating college, Elizabeth's brother became ill and died. Judge Cady was inconsolable. Elizabeth, who was 11 at the time, tried desperately to comfort him. But his only response was to sigh heavily and say, Oh, my daughter, I wish that you had been born a boy. Judge Katie did recognize Elizabeth's intellectual abilities and did give her more encouragement than other fathers of that time, despite his disappointment that Elizabeth was not a boy. He did allow her to come into his office and sit on the discussions of client cases. And that's where she was introduced at a very early age on the legal handicaps that women faced. Many of her father's clients were women whose problems arose from the prevailing laws which stripped them of all their property and earnings after marriage. Once a woman married, whatever she inherited or earned, money, property, even personal belongings, passed into the unrestricted possession of her husband. Sitting in her father's office, Elizabeth heard about husbands who spent their wives' money on other women, 
on drink and gambling, and in some cases, the husband had willed his own wife's wealth to a son who then grudgingly gave his widowed mother too little money to live on. Elizabeth heard about the women caught in miserably unhappy marriages, who when they did manage a divorce or separation, were not permitted to see their children because the father had exclusive rights of guardianship, no matter what kind of man he was. Judge Katie was sympathetic, but there was little he could do to help. He showed Elizabeth the law books, the wording of the laws, and the process by which legislation was created. When you are grown up, he said, you must talk to the legislators, and if you can persuade them to pass new laws, the old ones will be dead letter. Her early background and knowledge of women's subjugation was only one thing that prodded her into a life of activism. The Stantons lived in the cultural riches of the Boston area during their first eight years of marriage. Then in, 19, in 1848, the family moved to the small town of Seneca Falls, New York. While she was very engaged in motherhood, the restrictions of her home life, the lack of stimulation, and intellectual opportunity depressed her. She said, The general discontent I felt with a woman's portion as woman, wife, housekeeper, physician, spiritual guide, and the chaotic conditions in which everything felt without my supervision wearied me, and the wearied look, an anxious look, of the majority of women impressed me with the strong feeling that some active measures should be taken to remedy the wrongs in society in general and of women in particular. Elizabeth Cady Stanton had been involved in several causes, abolition, temperance, and of course women's rights before her move to Seneca Falls. But her experience there galvanized her to organize a convention that would have profound repercussions for years to come. Elizabeth, along with Lucretia Mott and other activist women, organized the Seneca Falls Convention of July 1848. 300 people attended and birthed what would be proved to be a life's work for Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She presented the Declaration of Sentiments. This was the rewriting of the Declaration of Independence where all men and women are created equal. She proposed the 19 grievances, which centered around the laws she had learned about in her father's law office, including a resolution that would extend the right for women to vote. After the Seneca Falls meeting, she was sought out by the Rochester meeting of the National Women's Right Convention of 1850. She sent endorsements and a speech to be read. In 1851, on her way home from an anti-slavery rally, Elizabeth Cady Stanton had a chance meeting, which would help change the face of the women's rights movement.
For Susan B. Anthony, being a girl had not created a great problem. Raised in a Quaker household, girls and boys were treated equally. Her father taught her daughters to be self-reliant and self-supporting, a thought unusual at the time. As a member of the only major religious group that allowed women equal participation, Susan grew up hearing women speak freely. She was well-educated in Quaker schools. She and several of her sisters were already teaching in their late teens. Susan's experience changed when she saw firsthand the injustice of the way women were treated under the law. Daniel Anthony, Susan's father, had been relatively successful running a cotton mill. However, in the Great Business Depression of 1838, they lost everything. The mill, their home, even things her mother had inherited from her parents. Even the clothing worn by herself, her mother and her sisters, were considered the property of the father and could be used to pay the debt. Susan, by the time the family property was put up for auction, Susan had saved a little teaching money to buy back the household goods. When her mother, Lucy's parents, passed away, her mother did not accept her share of the inheritance as it would have been passed on to settle her husband's debt. These things provided Susan Anthony with a brutally real experience of the legal disabilities of women. The sisters continued to teach and help the family, and with the help of an uncle, Daniel Anthony finally righted the situation. As a young woman, Susan continued teaching, but was certainly aware that a man doing the same job was paid four times more. We hadn't changed much there, have we? Susan's family, with the exception of her mother, was interested in the causes of the day. Her father left the Quaker church in favor of the more liberal Rochester Unitarian Church with Minister William Henry Channing and member Frederick Douglass. The Rochester Unitarian Church was a hotbed of abolitionist reformers. Her sisters were members of the temperance movement. Susan had taken a teaching position in Kanajahari, New York. Here she dropped the Quaker dress in plain language. She wore brightly colored dresses, attended parties and dances. She had many offers of marriage, which she turned down of her own choice. To Susan Anthony, the image of her mother, silent, worried, worn out from work and childbearing, became the symbol of marriage, even with the best of husbands. It made her less eager to enter that condition herself and more eager to improve it for others. After a few years in Kanajahari, Susan Anthony became dissatisfied with teaching. It paid too little. There were limits to female ambition. As headmistress, she had gone as far as a woman could expect to go and about the only profession open to educated women. She was an excellent teacher and administrator, but the work lost its original interest and challenge. By 1849, she found herself emotionally and intellectually underemployed. However, while in Kona Johari, 
Anthony became involved in the temperance movement. With her gift for organization and presentation, she quickly became an officer and a frequent presenter. She decided to leave teaching and move back to Rochester. Life back in Rochester was more interesting than one might expect. When she came home, her father charged her with the running of the family farm. She directed the planting, harvesting, and marketing, enjoying a life of action after the static classroom. There was a bustle of reform all around her. Her father had become a popular abolitionist, and his house was a gathering place for those with anti-slavery and liberal views. Susan heard all about the split in the anti-slavery groups over the women question and the stirring among women themselves. She became interested in the leaders like Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. It was not surprising when Susan Anthony decided to devote herself to the social causes of the day. Her father encouraged and supported her. His business was prospering, and in supporting his daughter, he would be supportive of the worth of his own heart. Susan was already involved with the Temperance Society of Rochester. She was highly organized and good at raising money. She met many activists in the movement, one was Amelia Bloomer, who lived in Seneca Falls. In the spring of 1851, an anti-slavery rally featuring some celebrated speakers from Great Britain was to be held in Seneca Falls. Susan Anthony joined Amelia Bloomer in Seneca Falls to attend this meeting. While walking home, destiny intervened. Susan B. Anthony met Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and suddenly the women's suffrage movement would find new synergy.
I want to share with you the friendship that changed the world. In the spring of 1851, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony met on the streets of Seneca Falls, New York, after an anti-slavery rally. The first meeting began a lifelong friendship and a dual pledge to uphold the rights of women. Elizabeth Cady Stanton had already organized the Women's Rights Conference of 1848 in Seneca Falls. When she revealed her passion and dedication to Susan Anthony, Susan became convinced to dedicate her life to the cause of women's rights. Elizabeth Cady Stanton later said, in thought and sympathy we were one, and in division of labor we exactly complemented each other. While she is slow and analytical in composition, I was rapid and synthetic. I am the better writer, she the better critic. She supplied the facts and statistics, I the philosophy and rhetoric. And so the synchronicity began. And indeed this was true. Together they went from their activist beginnings of the anti-slavery and temperance movements to leadership in the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Both women were in their 30s. Anthony had been teaching, and Stanton was married to the abolitionist Henry B. Stanton. Their involvement in the anti-slavery movement had led them to a broader understanding of equality issues. And each was passionate for the right of women to control their own lives. Anthony was inspired by Stanton's vision for advancing women and Anthony's organizing skills soon became apparent to Stanton, who had young children and could not travel regularly. Together, they launched a national women's suffrage movement, published a newspaper, The Revolution, and lectured, lobbied, and protested for equal rights for women. Indeed, in the years between 1869 and 1906, Susan B. Anthony had appeared before every congressional state house in the United States. During those years, there was said to be a room for Aunt Susan in the Stanton household, and when she was there, she would look after the children so that Elizabeth could write. Not only did they together challenge for suffrage, but much of the grassroots work had to do with challenging divorce laws, laws concerning women's rights to property, women's right to her own wages, and women's education. They continued to support abolition. They made several exhausting speaking tours together. They spoke at state houses, lyceums, schools, churches, and when Elizabeth's family needed her, Susan would go on her own and deliver Elizabeth's speeches. Night after night, by the light of an old-fashioned fireplace, Elizabeth wrote, we plotted and planned the coming agitation, how, when, and where each entering wedge would be driven. Such battles were fought over and over again. Theirs was a friendship 
that was public and political, but also private and genuine. They continued to lobby, speak, write, and organize throughout the 19th century. By the turn of the century, four states had granted suffrage. But numerous reforms concerning the everyday rights of women had been changed. In a final letter to Elizabeth, Susan wrote, we little dreamed when we began this contest, optimistic with the hope and buoyancy of youth, that half a century later, we would be compelled to leave the battle to another generation. When Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony handed the reins of leadership onto the next generation, they had laid the foundation of change for women in state houses all over the nation. All that was left was the right to vote. the 19th Amendment. It took so long. There was some hope that the Supreme Court might deliver the vote to women, but in a flurry of court cases after the 1872 presidential election, the Supreme Court did not act. 
a constitutional amendment calling for women's suffrage was first introduced into the Senate in 1878 and each session from then on. It never got out of committee. During the years when there was no hope in Congress, the women's movement began working from state to state. During one year, Susan B. Anthony had 250 speaking engagements throughout the country. They presented bills that allowed women to vote in local, state, and sometimes even national elections. It was in the territories and the new states that women were seen as viable partners. Independently, Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, and Colorado gave women the vote. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony's, and others did the slow but important work of building organizations state by state. The groups would eventually send senators and representatives to Washington who would let the amendment come to the floor. By the 1880s, Susan B. Anthony realized it was time to turn over the, the leadership to a new generation of fighters. She called them her nieces. Carrie Chapman Catt was one, Alice Paul another. They would take the leadership of the National Women's Suffrage Association in the final years as the pace quickened. A change was taking place in the public perception of the suffrage movement. No longer did the public see women getting the vote as the destruction of the family, but rather that the interests of the family extended beyond four walls and needed protection of voting wives and mothers. Politically, the movement was becoming larger and more vocal, while taking positions in the Taft, Roosevelt, and Wilson campaigns, the suffragettes became visible when they marched on the White House. When they were arrested for disturbing traffic, they asserted their rights as political prisoners and went on a hunger strike. The time was right. The 19th Amendment was introduced on January 20th, 1980, 18, 1918, by the first woman elected to Congress, Jeanette Rankin of Montana. The amendment passed on June 4, 1919, just barely with only one vote over the two-thirds majority, amidst cheers of women knitting in the galleries. The New York Times reported that women gathered on the Capitol steps were cheering like collegians after a football victory. Another hill to climb, 36 states needed to ratify with a majority vote from both of their houses. All those state-based organizations became important. The pace the, uh, of ratification was about two per month, two states per month, until it got bogged down at 35. In the end, the effort needed to gain ratification needed to be in a southern state. The fight was joined in Tennessee. According to Elaine Weiss, in her book, The Women's Hour, Carrie Catt stayed in the background. She understood that Southerners didn't want Northerners telling them what to do. There was a, uh, so it came down to the wire. It, there was a dramatic finish 
State Representative Henry Burns, clearly an anti, uh, was to be the deciding vote. But he had received a letter from his mother <laughs> telling him to vote with Mrs. Cat. And he was the deciding vote. Tennessee ratified the 19th Amendment and became the 36th state. Women's suffrage was a fact, thanks to Henry Burns' mother. <laughs> it took 72 years from Seneca Falls to the final ratification, but persistence and patience won. It is time to honor Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Carrie Catt, Alice Paul, and countless others, except they did count. The thousands of women in the 36 ratifying states who marched, made signs, lobbied officials, pressured representatives, all made a difference. Would women have the vote if these stubborn women hadn't worked for it? Persistent, hope, belief, 72 years of it, one out. May we be inspired by their example. Today's offering in its entirety supports our local partner in ministry, Francine House. Their mission is to provide care and shelter to Tulsans who have been or currently are the victims of sex trafficking. Please give generously to make a difference in the lives of those caught up in a web of secrecy, deceit, and slavery.
we say together, we build on foundations we did not lay. We warm ourselves at fires we did not light. We sit in the shade of trees we did not plant. We drink from wells we did not dig. We profit from persons we did not know. We are ever bound in community. Please rise in body or spirit and join in singing hymn number 1026, If Every Woman in the World. If you are reading from the hymnal, please note that we have changed the words of the refrain to, We Would All Have a Voice. May we carry the light of love and friendship in our hearts and persist in sharing it generously with the world. Blessed be.